time we were here was from Matthew Singer's wedding, um, if you remember that. So that's 20 years ago, um, almost exactly. Zinnia and I, my wife Zinnia and I had been married about three weeks at that point. So uh, we have kids now. And so we have uh, 15-year-old Liam, our 13-year-old Aiden, our 11-year-old son Connor, and our daughter Isabella. And it's, it was hard driving back. My wife was driving. And I was like, I, I need to drive because I need to like, point out stuff as we're driving because um, there's so many memories. It's been that long since, uh, since I've been back. So many amazing uh, memories, uh, too many to share, but I'll share my, one of my favorites. So I am now uh, the pastor of uh, Presbyterian Church, and when we do our membership course, uh, we explain denominations so people understand what it is when they're getting involved in a Presbyterian Church. And most of the terms have to do with how churches govern themselves. Presbyterian means ruled by elders, and we talk about, you know, Baptists and stuff, and I've actually worked in almost every different denomination there is. But when I talk about what it means to work in a, in a Baptist church, I explained uh, how, how things run differently. Again, this is, this is so every single member of my church um, knows about Concord Baptist because I share this story with every single membership course, every, about two or three courses a year, everyone hears a story. Um, so I was the youth pastor, and at that point, the youth pastor was really just a summer job. And uh, I felt called into that direction, and so I decided I was going to make it, um, after my freshman year, um, I was just going to be year-round youth pastor here at Concord Baptist. And so the budget really focused on money for the summer, and then the rest of the year, there wasn't a lot of money left. So the the money that was left over to to pay me to be the youth pastor literally didn't cover the gas driving from Longwood to here uh, a couple times a week. But that was just, who cares, right? You're just doing it. And uh, it was the... Your, it was your congregational yearly meeting, and the budget was presented, and I, I can't remember who the deacons were, but they presented it, and like any conversation, a couple of side chats, then someone, one of the most senior members in the church, senior saints, I don't even remember her name, I didn't even really know her, she goes, I have a question about line item, whatever it was, and, uh, and the, you know, the, the deacons weren't prepared for questions from the gallery, and he was like, what was the, and she's like, um, if I'm reading this right, is the, is the janitor making more money than the youth pastor? <laughs> and um, there was, and, and some of you were here for that meeting, you know what I'm talking about. And the, the answer was, I believe that is what that says. And she goes, well, I just, I don't know. It just doesn't sound right that the janitor is making more than the youth pastor. And she turned to the next person and said, does that sound right to you? And she's like, doesn't sound right to me. And then, and the, and the poor uh, chairman of the deacons was like, well, wait. And he goes, and before he could say anything, she motioned. She was like, I would like the motion, we pay him more. And before he could say anything, someone seconded it. And then before anything could happen, it moved to a vote. And then like, lickety split, my salary was like quintupled. And I was like, I like this. This is not bad. Um, that is my, that is, huh? Was it Diane Owen? It was one of my, and again, I share that story every single membership class at my church because it's amazing. Um, and so... Uh, just where we went from here, just so you know, we, uh, as I left here, I, I worked uh, at a uh, Presbyterian church, around the student ministry at a church in Northern Virginia. Um, and then from there, since a calling to go into missions, met my wife there. Um, went to Gordon-Conwell, got my uh, graduate degree there. I mean, I may not know, some of you remember, I was actually ordained here. It gives me a lot of street cred when visitors come in. I'm like a Presbyterian outside, but Baptist on the inside. Um, and uh, we went to London. We were there for a while. One of our sons was actually born there. And then we came back. Helped with church planning on, on both coasts. We actually helped the church plan in L.A., then in, uh, in Anglican Church in Myrtle Beach for a while. And then um, 
we really felt that the moving around bit was, was part of our life was done. And so we looked for a call where we could be, I'd love to be at a church long enough to both, you know, um, see, see kids born and, and see them married and, you know, eventually see their kids baptized. And so we've been at, I took a call at Reston Prez and I've been there now um, a little over eight years. Um, so that's kind of the, the quick summary of how I got to here. None of this counts as part of the sermon, by the way. Um, so uh, what we're going to do, we're actually doing, um, before I left, I've been on a, a long summer break. Uh, ironically, that was funny that Rick shared that story. I'm doing a series on food <laughs> at my home church. And it, you're surprised to see how many times food, either Jesus or, or in the Old Testament, either even one of the prophets, uses meals to teach something or something is taught over the course of a meal. And so we're doing a series where, where food is a part of it in some way, shape, or form. And we're gonna look at today about the Jesus, the meal Jesus spent with a tax collector. And to get there, to get your mind around, have you ever been uh, accused of something, good or bad? Uh, I believe there are a great many of you, if I accuse you of being a Virginia Tech fan, you would prou proudly accept that. And there's some of you, if I accused you of being a Virginia Tech fan, you would soundly reject that as well. Uh, sometimes accusations can come in different ways. Uh, I, I'm aware of it now, but a few years ago I wasn't aware of, I, I like to drink unsweet iced tea. That's just my, that's the drink I drink when I go to restaurants or whatever. I'm not aware of how many I'm, I'm just throwing down. Just, it's just a constant flow of unsweet iced tea. There is a, a, a Thai food restaurant close to where our house is. And, and I'd eaten there maybe a few times, over the course of a year, maybe three times I'd eaten there. Not, not a lot at all. But uh, the same server happened to be there every time I'm there. And one time I was meeting a, uh, a group from uh, the church. I was doing some premarital counseling courses, and I was meeting a couple couples there at the restaurant. And the same server sees me walk in. And before the, how are you? How can I help you? Before the anything, she goes to the kitchen. This is a true story. This is not, not fabricated at all. She doesn't grab a glass of iced tea. She grabs the entire pitcher. And she walks to the table and puts the pitcher down and walks away. <laughs> and they're all looking. And, I'm, and they're like, that was weird. And I'm like, no, I think she's accusing me of drinking so much iced tea that she doesn't want to worry about me for the whole course of the meal. And I was like, I'm wondering, am I like that all the time? Well, we're going to look a little bit about how uh, Jesus is about to be accused of something. And is it really a bad thing that he's going to be accused of that? But... Uh, I know it's not your uh, Concord Baptist tradition here, but we do it uh, at uh, my home church. I want to do it here. So if all of you would please stand in honor of reading of God's word. Maybe you do do that. I don't know. But we're doing it today. This comes from Luke chapter five, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, who do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance and be seated. Please uh, pray with me uh, once more. Father, we thank you for this time. 
Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work through your word into our hearts. Father, first and foremost, we pray for all the kids in our church. Lord, we pray for all those that are in their class right now, Lord, that they would grow in their understanding of you and the gospel. We pray for all those who work with kids, that you would give them that same grace. We pray for all the parents in our church, Lord, that you would give them understanding and grace to love their kids with the gospel. Father, we pray for any adult children who have wandered away from you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would draw them back. And Holy Spirit, we ask now this time, through your word, we would die to sin and become more alive to you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. So getting to the heart of it, looking at verses 27 and 28. Now after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, there are great sermons on what Levi gave up, but we're not really going to focus on that today. Again, we're focusing on the, the meal portion. Now, Levi was, who later he would become a disciple called Matthew. He was a tax collector, a publican. And a publican was someone, as you maybe have heard, was someone who, he was Jewish, but working for the Roman Empire. And his job was to tax you on their behalf, and he made his money skimming off of whatever he taxed you. So he represented the Roman government and the IRS. You were, if you were Jewish and you knew someone who was a publican, a Jewish publican, then as a good Jew, you were expected to hate this person. You were encouraged, expected, basically required to hate this person. The Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish writing on how you were to live, um, it's, non, it's not from the Old Testament, but it's writings from rabbis and how you're to live and how you interact, kind of like a code of, contact, code of conduct. The Talmud stated that if you knew someone was a, a publican, if they walked into your synagogue, you would escort them out. Think of that. You're a Jewish coming to worship, not allowed, because you're a publican. Publicans get out. A publican was not allowed to be a witness in court. Why? Because if you were a publican, that meant you were corrupt. You had to be corrupt. Why? Because you took your money on top of whatever you took from us. You couldn't be a witness. And on top of that, if a publican tried to buy anything in Jewish villages or, or, or communities, you were required to not accept the money, not give it to them, but like not take the money. You couldn't trade or buy with them. You were ostracized, and you were encouraged to hate this person. You were expected to hate this person. If you were a good Jew, you hated this person. A couple quotes on taxmen from our own country, actually from our own uh, antiquities here. The Beatles wrote a song about the tax man. If you've ever lived in England, they love their taxes there. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax your heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. Tax man, well, I'm the tax man, yeah, I'm the tax. Ann Landers, you guys remember her, the author? She said a person doesn't know how much he has to be thankful for until he has to pay taxes on it. Tiberius Caesar himself, Roman emperor, 
hated the taxmen. He says, it's the part, talking about those taxmen, those publicans, he says, it's the part of the good shepherd to shear his flock, not flay it. No one liked the tax collectors. The first question I want to ask, if you lived then, then you were given permission to hate someone. Your synagogue, your families, your community says you have permission to hate this person in every way, shape, or form. As Americans, who have you been given permission to hate? As Republicans or Democrats, who have you been given permission to hate? Southerners, Southern Virginians, Westerners. Our culture, wherever you live, whichever one you're in, gives permissions to hate. But think about where that permission comes from and what it's saying. Because I'm pretty sure there's someone else for all those who believe in God we haven't been given permission to hate people. But we live in a time now where there's a growing list of people we hate. Depending on where you fall on any type of issues, the culture, the greater culture we live in, is continually telling us we get to hate these people guilt-free. We need to add more people to the list of those we hate. As Christians, do you feel like you've been given permission to hate other groups as millennials or boomers? The list can go on. So let's look at the setting. So the first question I wanted you to ask yourself was, who do you think you've been given permission to hate? The Jews feel like they've been given permission to hate the publicans. Let's look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast. So there's the food in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And when you ate together at the time, the tables were set out. You were literally reclining. You'd walk in. We're going to see in a second. You see, don't just eating with them. They're literally reclining. At, he is reclining with them. He is relaxing with them. And the house is full of publicans. A house full of deplorables. You can't stand what you're seeing. Uh, my wife, now if you're from there, I'm not knocking you, but uh, my wife and my son went on a trip to Vegas recently to visit family and do some other stuff, and the flight was in and out of Las Vegas. And they walked the strip, and half of the time my wife was walking on the strip, you know, the, the expression for Vegas is what happens here stays here, right? Sin City. And it comes from, there's just an openness of just people being themselves. From addictions to other things. And my wife said half of the time we're walking here, she was trying to help tell my son, just look at the clouds. <laughs> just, just keep your eyes on the clouds, but don't look to your left or to your right. And when she was talking about it, she was like, you know, when Jesus says, go 
go eat. This is the genesis of the whole series I'm doing. Go eat with sinners. What you think about are go, go eat with the guy who maybe cheats on his taxes or, or the person who might have a, a, a problem with something more socially acceptable. She's like, these are people walking around I would struggle wanting to be with. And yet, those are the people Jesus is eating with. And I was like, yeah, I think I would have a problem too. Who are we told we can hate? Jesus is now in a room full of people that everyone in the community hates. Hates. Now let's look at verse 30. And there, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? You're eating with them. You're reclining with them. Why would you do this, Jesus? You're supposed to be something special, some type of a rabbi. You're in there with them. These are the people we hate. You're with the whole room of people we despise. And their concern was, based on unfortunate understanding theologically, they thought being around them would pollute them. If you remember the game you played in elementary school, Cooties, right? Touch you, you got Cooties. This was spiritual Cooties. They believed being around it, touching it, being around these people would somehow impact them. But they are completely wrong, and this is what Jesus was about to show them. Holiness comes from the inside out not the outside in. There was nothing they had on them that could pollute Jesus. Holiness is about being set apart. It's about your life and your heart being set apart. A couple texts to hear about that. Acts 10, 14. Peter was about to be given a vision. The apostle Peter was about to give him the vision to go reach Gentiles. And the vision that was given was that you were going, to rem- were going to be removing these ceremonial laws. You can now eat unclean animals. And, and again, the Old Testament, all that was to show how you're supposed to be set apart and different. It didn't actually mean you were actually literally holy or clean. It was to remind you every part of your life that you're supposed to be different than the world around you, different because you know God. It was never about the clothing. It was never about the clean or unclean animals. It was always supposed to be about reminding your heart is supposed to be set apart. And now God is saying, we're going to go even further. I'm removing that restriction. And Peter heard that, and he's like, no, no, no. In Acts 10, 14, he says, by no means, Lord. He says, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. What are you doing? Peter viewed himself that way. And God is now removing that barrier. Because Peter might have been one of those who was like, well, I'm not going to hang out with a publican. They're going to make me unclean. And now Jesus is saying, listen, that stuff doesn't make you unclean. It's your heart. You were born this way. You were already unclean. Newsflash. And I've come to heal that. Mark 7, 15. Jesus teaches on this. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So how do we do it? How does this happen? 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ as Lord and holy always. Our hearts are made holy by setting them apart, by them being set apart for righteousness, for God, for his word. 
they thought Jesus being in there was going to pollute him. But what's actually happened is Jesus is polluting the other guys in the room. Why? It's not shedding off of him like sweat. He's going to be there to poke at their hearts. These are the people who needed to hear it. Now, this is important when we're looking at ourselves, trying to find ourselves in this story. Are we going to be like Christ? Are we going to be like the tax collector? Who are we going to be as we're listening? Uh, there's a warning that comes with this, that, yes, it's your heart that's set apart. And if your heart is set apart, then other people cannot defile you. But other people can impact you. This verse definitely has a reminder that you are going to now need to go find the tax collectors and be with them. But the warning here is you don't be with them in a way that will cause you to stumble. Remember a time when I was actually at Longwood. I was trying to think of some Longwood stories. And there was a guy who, who absolutely loved the Lord. And uh, freshman year or so, he said, I'm going to go try to bring the Lord to the whole theater community at Longwood, which was very removed from God. And he just kind of went charging in. No support base, no deep fellowship with other believers, no strong connection to a church. And about two years later, I, I kind of, you know, Longwood isn't a huge school, but I didn't see him for about a year or two. And when I bumped into him, he was as far removed from his faith as one could possibly be. Why? Because when he went into the community, he forgot that he needs to set his heart apart from the Lord. He thought that he could do the work, but it's God who has to do it. God has to set apart your heart, not you. Holiness comes from the inside being separate. So what does that mean? Jesus was as safe as humanly possible going in to eat with the tax collectors. If your heart is set apart, the Holy Spirit's residing there. You are just as safe, spiritually speaking, meeting with sinners as Jesus was with the tax collectors. And look at the end here, verses 31 and 32. It says this, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. So what happened was the all the people, the, 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 the Pharisees were walking around, looking in, like, look what's in that room. Look what's in that room. All the tax collectors and Jesus. What is happening in that room? What did they see when they looked at that room? They saw Jesus hanging out with these sinners. What did Jesus see when he saw that room full of people? He saw sinners. He absolutely saw sinners, but the difference was he saw sinners in need of healing. The Pharisees and the scribes saw sinners who were in need of more condemnation, more isolation. Jesus saw them as people who are spiritually sick in need of the only medicine, the only cure in existence, which is the gospel. The Pharisees 
didn't realize it, but they were just as sick as the tax collectors. The tax collectors needed the gospel. The Pharisees, looking in, hating them, needed the gospel just as much as the tax collectors did. The Pharisees sinned with self-righteousness. And they need the gospel just as much. So when Jesus looked at that room, we have the answer to what he saw. And this is important because, again, when the world is giving you permission to hate, and the gospel is prohibiting that, denying you that privilege of hating, the joy of feeling of hating someone, either being superior or what is, you are denied that in the gospel. How are you to view those whom you are supposed to hate? Well, Jesus says it very clearly in Matthew 9, 13. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus has called, come to call the sick, not the healthy. Mercy and compassion. That's how we're to view those. Without Christ, we are all spiritually sick. But with him in the gospel, we are saved. Without Christ, we are dead. With him, we are eternal. I talked at the beginning of my sermon about being accused. What have you been accused of recently? The best way to remember the gospel is to remember how much you didn't deserve it. It must become precious to you. So when you're reading this story, we often like to think we were the tax collectors needing Jesus. But I find oftentimes I don't think that's who we really are. I think we are more often the Pharisees deciding who and who isn't worthy of the gospel, forgetting that none of us were worthy of the gospel. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it. That's what makes us thankful. That's what makes it grace. If you want to remember the gospel, then you must remember grace. When you read the story, remind yourselves that, yes, you might be the tax collector, but there are many times when you're also the Pharisee. And what we have in common, the Pharisees, with the tax collectors, is none of us deserved a moment of Jesus' time, let alone his death on the cross. Yet because of mercy, that's why he came. This is what Jesus was accused of. Loving those who didn't deserve to be loved which we should count ourselves a part of. That's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why he rose again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. Lord, you saw our condition and said, you know what? Even though they may think they are fine, they are not. You came to call us who are sick to repentance, that we may find everlasting life in you. Lord, help us to see ourselves as those 
who are sick in need of the gospel. And help us to be thankful that you brought that gospel to us. And may we look at the world around us and see it the same way. That our only hope is for you to come save us and to be with us. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.